The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. I have been uneasy in my own mind about a phase of the truth that is set forth in our text. Usually I am well convinced of my theological position on any text before I come to the actual writing of the study. But I've had a great deal of hesitation about the text that I'm presenting today. For I find myself down deep in my heart at variance with most of the commentators. And it is no small thing to take a position that is widely separated from that which has been held and taught by great numbers of godly men who have gone before me in the field of biblical exposition. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, An Exhortation to Christian Living. If a baseball player suddenly stops between third base and home, he will be tagged out. He must go all the way and touch home plate in order to score a run. When our fellowship with God is broken by sin, there is no such thing as coming part of the way back to Him. We must come all the way back to the Lord in genuine repentance and faith and with a renewed commitment to submit to His will and His Word. The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 8 and verse 6. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, An Exhortation to Christian Living. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. With what joy do we approach thee, for in coming to thee we are at the fountain of all truth and righteousness, and we find all the springs of grace, mercy, and peace in thee. Bless us, we pray thee, in this hour, and use thy word for the enrichment of our souls. We have a great desire to be more like thee, and we know that thou hast told us through our Lord Jesus that there is no way of spiritual growth except through thy word. Speak to each listening heart in this hour. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. My text today is in Romans 8, 6. For to be carnally minded is death. In the last two studies, I have presented the same paragraph in a way that conforms to the interpretation held by almost all commentators. I have applied the text to the unregenerate, but today I'm going to apply it to Christians. First, let me say that I believe that the words that are used in this cluster of verses about the condition of those who are in the flesh can truly be applied to the unsaved. 
but I have come to the conclusion that this does not preclude their application to the saved, and that in the mind of the Holy Spirit expressed here through St. Paul, the primary application should be to Christians. Now the whole of the passage reads, for they that are after the flesh, and you see the point of my difference is that I have interpreted this along with all other commentators as meaning that those that are after the flesh are unsaved. But today I'm going to present it in quite a different way, that those that are after the flesh are Christians, believers, carnal believers. The whole passage is, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit do mind the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now it's very simple to interpret this as a contrast between the saved and the unsaved. But I, as I say, have now come to the conclusion that such an interpretation does violence to the whole continuity of the development of thought in the epistle to the Romans. I am therefore going to present this as a description of the carnal life of a born-again man and point out that God is seeking to bring carnal Christians into the high level of holy living by the teaching that underlies this passage. There will be those who immediately cry out that verse 9 says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And they will say that the passage must, therefore, be talking about the contrast between the saved and the lost. It was this barrier, I confess, that held me confined to traditional interpretation for many years until the Lord showed me that there was a simple explanation which restores the continuity of the whole epistle. Let me go back for a moment over the first seven chapters and get the great swing of truth in its development by the apostle. The first two and a half chapters of Romans set forth the sinful state of the Adamic race. We are all, whether Jew or Gentile, under the formidable sentence of death, which was passed upon the race when Adam sinned. There is not one ray of light in the dark picture that is painted for us. The heart is deceitful above all things and incurably wicked, as Jeremiah tells us. Now, following this terrible indictment, there is the glad announcement that God came down in Jesus Christ in order to accomplish our redemption. The heart of the epistle is found in the last dozen verses of the third chapter, where Christ is set forth as dying for us on the cross, accomplishing the double work of satisfying the holiness and righteousness of God and of redeeming and justifying the sinner who believes the word of God about the Lord Jesus Christ. And this brings us into the fourth chapter, where we find the justified man living in freedom, apart from the law of Moses or the ordinances of the ancient faith. The fifth chapter shows us the fruits of this justification. We have peace with God. We have access by faith. We stand in grace. We rejoice in hope. We glory in tribulations. We abound in love. And we are given the Holy Spirit. The contrast is then presented between our former union with Adam and our present union with Christ. Just as all evil flowed from our inheritance from Adam, so the very life of God is imparted to us through our union with Christ. 
And we are seen by God as being as perfect as the Lord Jesus Christ. There immediately arises in the mind the accusation of immoral tendency. That we are teaching that when a man is eternally saved in Christ, will it not be possible for believers to let down the bars and allow sin to dominate? Now this charge is repudiated in the chapter 6, and it's seen that our union with Christ is planned by God for the purpose of bringing practical holiness to our daily lives. We are brought to the place where we are identified with Christ and pass through the experience of death, burial, and resurrection with him, as well as union with him in his whole eternal plan for us. And in this same sixth chapter, we are crucified with Christ and raised from the dead. It is for this reason that we are called to holiness. But the believer who has passed through all of these wonderful experiences and who has come to all this great knowledge finds that his mind accepts these truths theologically, but that in practice, the horrible motions of sin are still with him. Even though he knows himself to be crucified with Christ, he recognizes that he cannot have unmixed perfect good in this life, and he is tempted to despair. The great conflict of the seventh chapter of Romans is the conflict of the believer in the most advanced stages of his spiritual experience. It is not the warfare within an unregenerate man, nor is it the warfare between the base nature of Adam and the new nature that comes to us with Christ. It is the recognition that first comes to us with a feeling of great heaviness, that we are not going to have divine perfection while we are in this life, and yet our renewed hearts so long for holiness and so hunger and thirst after righteousness. The Holy Spirit then brings us to peace at the end of that struggle, and we enter into the triumph of the eighth chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Now all of this has been in a steady, orderly progression of thought and in the experience of Christians. And I am now sure that the writer of this epistle does not return at this point to a consideration of the contrast between the unsaved and the saved, between those who are dead in trespasses and sins and those who are alive in Christ. That contrast exists and it is taught in many other places, but we are confronted with something different and something greater at this point. The heart of this passage can be stated as follows. You are in Christ. You have been redeemed. You have been justified. You have seen yourself as joined to Christ. You have known in your minds the truths of your high position in Christ. But practically speaking, you know that your condition falls below that which your position calls for. And all is clear if we understand that the word death in this passage does not refer to the second death, nor even to the physical death which God sometimes measures out to those who have flouted his grace and sinned to the point of final discipline, as is set forth in 1 John in the discussion of the sin unto death, and which is given with the communion service as a warning against late participation in the solemn reminders of our union with Christ. The death spoken of in Romans 8 is not that mentioned when the Spirit says, 
For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. The death spoken of in Romans 8 must be understood as the loss of life that is dedicated to God and blessed in him on earth. There are Christians, alas how many, who have physical life and who go about their tasks, even religious tasks, but who are not rejoicing in the great triumphant realities that are available for us, but which remain unclaimed and unused. Life in this passage is nothing less than the abounding triumph of the believer in the joy of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Anything less than this, when it is possible, is death. Death, then, in this passage, is the living existence of a born-again believer on a spiritual level that is lower than that which God has designed for us. When this is understood, the passage returns to its place in the logical sequence and becomes a powerful exhortation to high and holy Christian living. Many of the great hymn writers have described the practical state of vast numbers of true believers. And indeed, the description fits some moments in the life of every believer. It was William Cooper who wrote, Oh, for a closer walk with God, a calm and heavenly frame, a light to shine upon the road that leads me to the Lamb. Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? What peaceful hours I once enjoyed! How sweet their memory still! But they have left an aching void the world can never fill. Now that aching void is the death in the life of the Christian of which the Holy Spirit is speaking in our text. There is no believer who has not tasted it at some moment in life, I say, and there are many, many Christians who are in that death at the present moment, even though they are alive in Christ. To come out of that death is the real meaning of revival. Oh, I know that many churches speak of revival as a period of evangelistic meetings, but that is a false usage of the word and obscures the true meaning which is of so great importance in the church. Revival comes to us from the Latin, re, again, and vivere, to live. It should be used to describe the coming back to spiritual surrender of one who has gotten out of the will of the Lord. We use these phrases in our ordinary speech without realizing what they are. A mother has a child that has strayed away into the woods. Hours pass. A posse goes out to beat the brush while the mother is at home in deep anguish. Her state of mind at this time resembles the state of mind of a true Christian who is out of the will of God. Unfortunately, simply because it is impossible to live with too much pain, the believer frequently deadens his real sensitivities with a round of worldly activities and sometimes with a round of religious activities. But the Holy Spirit has been grieved and he has gone to his silent corner in the heart and has shut himself in. He will not break forth into our lives again until we have spoken the word which will allow him to take over the cleansing of the heart and the ordering of the life. Suddenly into the room where the mourning mother lies resting, a friend comes in with a shout. They've found him. The child is all right. The mother jumps to her feet. All her anxiety is gone in a moment. Her fears are departed. 
her joy has returned. She cries, oh, now I can live again. That's right. She's had a mental revival. And when we allow the Holy Spirit to come out of his grief and take the place that is rightfully his, this is revival. I recently saw a remarkable example of revival in the life of a young man whom I had known for many years. He had been associated with our church for more than two years in the ministry of music, but he had gotten out of the will of the Lord. Even after he had left us and had gone into evangelistic meetings, he drifted farther and farther from God until he had gone completely back into the world. He had great ability and had made an outstanding success for himself in the entertainment world. But his life was empty. He had a lovely home, but his life was empty. He had acquaintances by the hundreds, but his life was empty. His acquaintances were no more than the casual acquaintances of an ordinary sinful life, but that life was empty. I went to Cincinnati for a meeting last autumn, and for old time's sake, when he saw the notice in the paper, he looked me up. I was shocked at the death that was in his life. I besought him to return to the Lord and allow the Lord to fill his soul again. All he would say was, pray for me, doctor, pray for me, pray for me. I prayed for him through several months, and my prayer was always that the Lord would make him miserable and that nothing that he touched would bring him any real or lasting satisfaction. And the Lord wonderfully answered that prayer. Months later, I returned to that city for a convention. Again, he looked me up and I insisted that he come to a meeting where Billy Graham was preaching. We were separated by half a dozen seats, but I could see him as he leaned forward listening to the message. There was a grim darkness upon his face that seemed to get harder as the meeting advanced. When the message was over, I was with him in a moment. I told him that I could read the image of his mind during that hour. I told him he had remembered the times when he had been in fellowship with the Lord. He had remembered the times when he had had the joy of standing before large audiences to minister Christ to men. And now he was in deepest darkness. He was saved beyond question, but his existence was not life, but death. Again, I insisted that he come with me and we went to my hotel and I took him to Billy Graham's room. There for an hour, the group of us went into the heart of his need. There was only one thing in the way. He had loss of fellowship through sin. That sin had to be confessed and forsaken. And all he would say was, pray for me, pray for me. His wife stated that he had often said that he would not come back to God unless he came all the way. Now, he may not have known it, but there is no other way to come back to God. You cannot come back to God piecemeal. You cannot give part of your heart to God and then think you're all in his will. I asked him if he knew the point at which he had departed from the will of God. Of course he did. And suddenly the break came. There was a paroxysm of weeping as he fell upon his knees with us. There he was crying out to God in agony for the way he had dishonored God by not living as a believer in the midst of the unregenerate world before whom he should have been a shining light shining from God. Now, there are many of you who are just as far from the life of power and joy of God. You may not be so spectacularly away from God as was this friend, but a desert is a desert if you're a mile from its edge or 10 miles from its edge. Every Christian will experience moments of dryness 
Every Christian will get out of the will of God, out of fellowship from time to time. But God does not want us to live away from him. He does not want us to fall into despair because of defeat. He does not want us to remain as babes without growing up into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And the best way of avoiding the death that such existence is will be found in knowing to the full the life that the Lord has for us in his son. John Newton, the great English divine, who was brought to the Lord in his childhood by his mother, went into a life of deepest sin and after his remarkable conversion, became one of the most powerful forces for God in Britain. He knew, however, the moments of dryness that Christians experience and how such moments are like death. Among his great hymns is the following, How tedious and tasteless the hours when Jesus no longer I see. Sweet prospects, sweet birds and sweet flowers have lost all their sweetness with me. The midsummer sun shines but dim. The fields strive in vain to be gay. But when I am happy in him, December's as pleasant as May. And he then describes the blessedness of being in the will of God, the marvelous joy of knowing a true oneness with Christ. And he ends his hymn, Dear Lord, if indeed I am thine, if thou art my son and my song, and I would have written it, Dear Lord, since indeed I am thine, since thou art my son and my song, say, why do I languish and pine, and why are my winters so long? Oh, drive these dark clouds from my sky, the soul-cheering presence restore, or take me unto thee on high where winter and clouds are no more. You know, there are some things that can truly be known only by contrast. If you were forced to drink ocean water in the middle of the sea, it would be the contrast with the sweet water you had known, which would make the salt water so vile. We look upon a woman who is reeling drunkenly in the gutter, and our horror is heightened by the memory of the sweet holiness of our own mother. So it is that any amount of separation from Christ is all the more death-like because of the wonder of the moments of communion that have been truly ours. I told my friend who came back to God after years of wandering that he was not Judas being saved, for Judas never was saved, but that he was Simon Peter coming back after having denied his Lord. He was not an unregenerate coming to the Savior, but the prodigal son, who had in his memory the taste of the food at his father's table, and the memory of the warmth and love of his father's house. Oh, never use the story of what is popularly known as the parable of the prodigal, as an illustration of salvation. No, no, it is the story of a believer who has the life of God within him, and who has gone out from it into a state that is one of spiritual deadness and who remembers the heavenly father, and who comes back to his waiting love. Do not waste even a minute of the precious communion that is possible with the Lord. Newton put it again, his name yields the sweetest perfume, and sweeter than music his voice. His presence disperses my gloom, and makes all within me rejoice. 
I should, were he always so nigh, have nothing to wish or to fear. No mortal so happy as I, my summer would last all the year. Content with beholding his face, my all to his pleasure resigned, no changes of season or place would make any change in my mind. While blessed with a sense of his love, a palace, a toy would appear, and prisons would palaces prove if Jesus would dwell with me there. Oh, he will dwell with you, forsake your sin, and allow him to maintain you in the fellowship, which is life indeed and life abundant. Lord, speak to each heart. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Countless believers live on a spiritual level that is much lower than what God intends. We must settle for nothing less than daily abounding joyful triumph in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, An Exhortation to Christian Living. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the internet by visiting us at AllianceNet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, An Exhortation to Christian Living, or simply request message number R8-10. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, Tragedy or Triumph. Our lives are often shaken by devastating tragedy, and yet we can look back later and see how God brought forth glorious triumph from tragic circumstances for our benefit and His glory. This free booklet contains six favorite sermons by Dr. Barnhouse, including Tragedy or Triumph, Who Died at Calvary, Oil and Wine, Salted with Fire, The Scales of God, and Falling into Grace. These messages will encourage, challenge, and uplift you. Ask for your free copy of Tragedy or Triumph when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you've benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.